Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. All right, so Acts chapter 15, and we're going to begin there in just a moment. But before we do, I simply want to say that this message that the Lord has laid on my heart has a simple title. I'm simply entitling this message, Watershed. Watershed. You know what a watershed is, right? It's not where you keep your water. It's not a building that you keep your water in. A watershed is a geographical term that describes an area of land that will determine where the water goes when the water falls on it. Think for just a moment about a mountain range, for example. And the rain that falls on a mountain range, well, on one side of the mountain range, some of that water will fall and make its way to particular tributaries and creeks and streams that may make their way to a lake and one particular river that may lead to a particular larger body of water, an ocean or a sea. Perhaps on that same mountain chain, on the other side of the mountain, the same rain will fall, but that rain will make its way to particular, well, streams and creeks and tributaries that may make their way to particular lakes and to a different river that takes it to a different body of water or sea and ocean. So a watershed is a term that describes a kind of uh, dividing line, a kind of defining moment. And, and you and I use it as an idiom, don't we? we? We use the word watershed to describe not just geographical locations where water flows, we We use it as a way to describe moments in our lives that become defining moments with such impact and shaping power on our lives that from that moment forward, we're never the same again, ever. A watershed moment comes when when you begin to define your life as the life I had before the thing happened and the life I had after the thing happened. We have personal watersheds, don't we? The date was October the 16th. 1993, when I dated Laura Beeler for the very first time, and it was a watershed moment for me. I mean, game over, right? Check, please. That was it. Everything else was defined from that moment forward differently. When we, when we give birth to our children, or witness the birth of children, it's a watershed moment. But we also have shared watershed moments too, don't we? I bet in this room, maybe even in the other room at Family Life Center or online, I bet if I mention the the date December 7th, 1941, some of you will remember where you were on that watershed moment when the announcement that we had been attacked at Pearl Harbor came across the radio. Or, Or some of you may remember November the 22nd, 1963, and the announcement of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Or maybe you remember April the 4th, 1968 and the assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Or maybe most of us, not everybody in this room, but maybe most of us will remember 
September the 11th, 2001, as the watershed moment of our era. So much so that life before 9-11 was one thing. And everything, including our consciousness and what it means to be a society, what it means to be a people, what it means to be alive, was shaped by that moment afterwards. And I would even say that this pandemic is, is a kind of season of a watershed season in our lives that will shape us for Lord knows how many generations to come. I say all of that to say that in Acts chapter 15, it is the quintessential watershed moment for the early church. A decision is made in the church there at Antioch and at Jerusalem, at the home mother church in Jerusalem. A decision is made by the Jerusalem council that changes everything. It's a watershed moment that shapes the very definition of what it means to be the church of Christ. And I want to get into that in just a moment, but I want to also say that if we pay close attention to what happens in Acts chapter 15, we'll see that not only was there a one-time-in-history watershed moment, a decision that was made that would shape us for the rest of our future, but there's also a model an example of, of what we might do to address every other watershed moment that we may ever face in our individual journeys, our family life, or even a church life. And that's what I want to talk about for just a moment. But before we talk there, you see I'm, I'm teasing you with the text. You see I'm kind of teasing you. We're not there yet. But in order to get there, you have to know where we've been. And maybe you're just joining us for the first time in a long time. You need to know that the resurrection of Christ changed everything. And after his resurrection, we have already seen in these last dozen weeks that we've been together on this study, that after the resurrection, he showed himself to his disciples. And he said to them, I want you to wait. I'm sending the Spirit, which will empower you animate you, infuse you with a kind of power that you've never experienced before. So they waited, and on Pentecost, the Spirit came. He descended, like we've said, like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it fell upon every person there, every believer, male and female, young and old, wealthy and poor, educated and uneducated. And they experienced something they could have never anticipated. They were beginning to do things that they had only seen him do before. They were beginning to say things that they had only heard him say before because now his resurrected presence was literally actually living through them and, and with them. And so news spread about this thing that was happening, this watershed moment in the consummation of all time. And, well, it spread like wildfire. Because not only was there this news that made its way to every man, woman, boy, child, boy or girl, that you could be known by God and that you, were, that you were known by God, that you could know God intimately and be repaired in the places where your life has been broken. Not only that, but these people who proclaimed this message began to live differently. They began to live as if what they actually said they actually believed. So their lives were transformed. Husbands stopped beating wives. People 
who were owed money stopped lording over their debtors and began to forgive them their debts. They began to see a kind of radical hospitality and generosity in people that they had never seen before. And, and even though this would seem like good news, there were some who were only threatened by this news. Because now the people who called themselves the people of the way, they were living a lifestyle that became threatening because what they were doing was threatening the status quo of every institutional structure or infrastructure that had previously propped up people's confidence in life and, 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 and rhythm. And so they began to persecute the people of the way. And they made their way out of Jerusalem into the countrysides, into the villages and towns and cities around Jerusalem. They made their way north to a city called Antioch. And that's where we were last week. And Antioch becomes like the central church for the Christian movement for the first 150, 200 years of its movement. We talked last week about how Antioch is this multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multicultural center that was described by Josephus as one of the three greatest cities in the Roman world, filled with every kind of person and peoples. And yet now that the message of Jesus, and better yet, the demonstration of the way of Jesus had made its way into Antioch, well, people everywhere were beginning to notice. Not only the Christians who called themselves the people of the way, but people who were even critics of the Christians who called them like the little Christs. That's where we first got our name. The, the Christians were from other people who observed our lives and we acted so different than the rest of the world that we, we were known as little Christs. Maybe a good question from time to time is to ask, is your life so ordered in such a way that those around you would see in you something that reminds you them of him. Well, it was so infectious. It was so compelling. They couldn't stop talking about it. And the people who are witnessing this kind of transformed existence, well, they couldn't stop it. It was like a wildfire. It was so compelling that people from every background began to say yes to it, to yield their life to a way of life that leads to resurrection. And while you might think that's good news, it caused a bit of a challenge for the first leaders of the church. The challenge was, how do you convey and experience and, and welcome into this new movement, this new kingdom existence in the world those who have not previously traveled the way you've traveled. People from other backgrounds, other cities, other languages. And there's a little anxiety emerging in the church. And we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 15. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I love that phrase. After they had no small, after they had it out with them, until the veins in their neck just bulged because they were arguing vehemently against this, this yoke that they would place around people's neck. They 
after they had done that, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. They were going to go to their home church in Jerusalem, the, the mothership, the first church. So they went and uh, they were sent on their way by the church. And as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of Gentiles, non-Jews. And it brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. Some, though, some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them, the new believers, the new Gentile believers, it's necessary for them to be circumcised and, and ordered to keep the law of Moses. And there's the problem. Now what's happening at Jerusalem? Keep in mind, always in the background, you must keep this awareness that the Christian movement began as a movement within Judaism. It was never Jesus' intent to start a new religion, ever. Jesus came to, to proclaim that in this world there's a new kind of kingdom, a new way to exist with one another that, that supersedes religions, supersedes boundaries, territories. There's a different way to exist as God's human family. So Jesus was never a Christian. Can we just agree to that? Jesus was never a Christian and would never join a church. However, as a part of a movement within Judaism, Christianity began as a culmination of this gorgeous narrative of salvation history that has been happening for generations. That's what the entire Hebrew Bible is all about. You remember this covenant was made first with Abraham. And Abraham, his family became what later we would call the people of Israel and the chosen people. And that phrase is a confusing phrase because to be a chosen people doesn't mean there was anything particularly special about them. But God was attempting to enter into the saga of the human story and God had to choose someone. So God happened to choose Abraham and said, I will make of you and your people a great nation because I'm up to something. God was up to entering into the story of the human saga through one particular people so that in the fullness of time, when the time was just right, the Messiah would come. And the resurrected king would establish a kingdom that all nations would be a part of, not just the Jews, but all nations, right? So you know the story as it unfolds in the Hebrew Bible. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know the story about the Israelites in bondage in Egypt. You know the story about Moses delivering them through the Exodus. Those wonderful stories of their wilderness journey toward the land of promise. You know all these stories, right? But all of those stories are put in place in the sequence of time and space in order to accomplish something in the grand scheme of things that God wanted to accomplish through the Christ. So you read at the end of Exodus and you read at the end or throughout the book of Leviticus these rigid laws that are put in place 
So that he brings the people out of slavery and says, now that I have chosen you and redeemed you, I'm up to something. But in order for me to accomplish the thing that I'm up to, I need you to behave in a particular way. I'm going to make of you a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Because through you, all the world, the multilingual, multi-ethnic, multicultural world that I love will come to me. You'll be like a like a city set on a hill, and I will use you. So, therefore, for the time being, there are some rigid things that I need from you. All of your other neighbors will worship 40 or 50 gods, but not you. You will worship one. Others will eat all kinds of food for, for a while, not you. You will eat these and avoid the other. Uh, your neighbors may work seven days a week, but not you. You work six, and on the seventh, you will honor me and worship and be restored back in your own soul to who I had hoped you might be from the very beginning. And so one of the signs of that covenant people was male circumcision. Another sign was the dietary codes they follow. Another sign was following Torah, the laws of Moses. And all of it was important for a time. The way I think about it is from that great theologian, philosopher, teacher, Mr. Miyagi. Now think about it. You know the old, the original Karate Kid. I'm not talking about about all the others that came after. I'm talking about the classic, the Karate Kid. Daniel comes to Mr. Miyagi and needs to learn how to do karate. And Mr. Miyagi agrees to train him. But he does the strangest thing. See, he has him wax his car. And he has him sand the floor and paint the fence and paint the house. And after days and days of this labor, this rigid discipline of shaping him into, after all, he's, so, he's complaining. He's upset. He comes to Mr. Miyagi. I've come to you to teach me karate, but you haven't taught me a thing. And Mr. Miyagi says, not everything is as, as it seems. See, and Go ahead and play the clip here for just a moment. He calls him to his backyard and he says, look, there has been something happening in you that you didn't know at the time. When I ask you to wax on, wax off, you're developing the muscle memory that you will need one day. When I ask you to paint the fence up and down, you're teaching the tissues of your body to react the way they need to react. When I talk to you about painting the house or sanding the floor, I'm up to something. And you know why, Daniel? Because when push comes to shove, there will come a day when you need everything that you have learned to emerge out of you when the time is right so that you will then know what to do. In the same way, the Hebrew Bible gives us this gorgeous record of having shaped a people, not simply because they're just chosen and better than everybody else, and not simply so they have things to do, but so that there will be a shaping in them that prepares them to become a priestly kingdom and a holy nation so that when it is time to paint the fence and wax the car and paint the house, they will know how to live as a city on a hill because when the Messiah comes, he will need witnesses in this world to demonstrate not just with their mouths but with their lives what it looks like to live in this new kind of kingdom. So the problem at Antioch, is that it, it, it was working. I mean, now the Messiah had come. The resurrected Jesus is the, the king of the world. And now his witnesses are attempting to demonstrate what they had always prepared for, you know. They had always prepared. You did follow that, right? 
My form is a little off. It's been a little while. But they had prepared their entire history, the salvation history of the people, to become the witnesses needed so that the Gentiles will come to faith. And guess what? It was working. And they were coming to faith. But there were some who said, well, hang on. They don't get off that easily. They have to jump through the same hoops we jumped through. They have to jump over the same spiritual hurdles that we had to jump through. And one of those signs was male circumcision. And that's why they brought it to the council. And the council discussed it. And there were those who were believers, but who were Pharisees, who said, not so fast. Listen, let me just break in with a, just a word of truth here. Anytime. 100% of the time, when the Spirit of God is attempting to do something new in your life, when the Spirit, the windy Spirit of God that moves where it wills, with or without uh, people's permission, when the windy Spirit of God is up to moving and doing something new in your life, there will be other winds blowing too. There will be counterwinds. Gale force winds that counteract the movement of the Spirit of God in your life. And if by God's grace you can hear the whisper of the Spirit speak in your ears that you are made new, that you are forgiven, that you are made whole, that you are beautiful, that you have been made beautiful and are kept and known by God. When you hear that voice, there will be other voices that attempt to convince you that you're not as beautiful as you think. That you're not as forgiven as you think because what you did was really bad. And there will be other voices that attempt to remind you of where you've been and what you've done and what you've said and who you used to be. And in those days, I just want you to remember, sometimes they will sound super spiritual too. You ever known anybody who, who, who is so negative and, and just holding you back, but they sound super spiritual about it. They put like this spiritual frosting on top of whatever cake they're serving you. And yet, don't forget that even the tempter himself, while in the wilderness, quoted scripture to our Lord. The truth is, when the wind of God's spirit blows in your life, God is up to something new that did not come from the world, and the world cannot take it away. Now, to be fair to those in this story, though, the text says that they were believers who were from the sect of the Pharisees, right? That means these were Pharisees first, but they loved Jesus, and they began to follow Jesus. Do you know that in the Torah, the word Torah means law. We know that, the law of Moses, Torah. But at the same time, the rabbis will tell you that it doesn't only mean law. Torah means gift. It is a gift to have been living in a kind of rigid, disciplined way so that you don't turn one way or another. The gift of Sabbath, the gift of discipline, the gift of the law of Moses. They saw Scripture as a gift. They saw the law as a gift that had gotten them thus far. The trouble was they were overlooking the greater gift, Grace. Grace. So what they decide in this committee meeting, this council meeting, will make all the difference. And the reason I call it a watershed moment is because what will they do 
in this moment, what they decide to do with these Gentile Christians will make every difference. Will they decide to put back on them the yoke of slavery and burden and make themselves perform their way into the heart of God, or will they let grace lead the way? So we pick up in verse 8 or verse 6. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, I love that phrase too, after they had duked it out, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that early in, that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And, and God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, at, and, and in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made, watch this, no distinction between them and us. No distinction between we who have practiced the law our entire life and for generations on end. No distinction between us and them who just walked in the door. Now, therefore, why are you going to put God to the test by placing on the neck of these disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. This is a watershed moment, a watershed speech, a watershed meeting in the life of the church because what he was saying is it's all grace. Now we can disagree about some things, but there are some things we cannot disagree about. And that is, if it is anything more than grace, then we have nullified the sacrifice that he has made on our behalf and with us. Now, N.T. Wright is a uh, New Testament scholar who I love and admire. And you know what he said about this moment? He said, what they learned there is the thing that we all need to learn in the church even to this day. The church must learn the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't. I just want you to leave that up there because some of you are note takers. I want you to write it down or take a picture with your phone. If I'm in the shot, make sure you get my good side. The church needs to learn the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't. How many churches are torn apart because of differences that don't make a difference? And yet this is a difference that makes a difference. Are we going to be a church, the early church had to decide, that makes human beings clean their life up first before they come? Are we going to make them perfect their lives before they come into our community? Or will grace lead the way? A little while ago we sang Amazing Grace. We didn't sing Amazing Law. How sweet the sound that, that saved a high performer like me. Right? It's Amazing Grace. This is why Paul, in another letter addressing the same issue in Galatians 2, had these words to say, For freedom Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, of thinking that you have to perfect yourself before you make your way into the heart of God. Or in Ephesians, we hear the same kind of argument, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, the res- not the results of works, so that no one may boast. Beloved, if you and I have to perform our way into the heart of God, we're all doomed. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that you don't have to work your way into the heart of God. You are already there. I've said it for years. God is crazy about you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And salvation is waking up to that amazing news and then living as if it's actually true. Now that's a difference that makes a difference. And from that moment forward, every church that calls itself by the name of of Jesus must be a grace-centered church, patient with people, so that God and God's good timing can make the transformation in their life that God decides and not we. Grace and grace alone through faith is our way. Now that was the watershed moment of the first century church. But I also said to you, it is not just a watershed moment in the life of the church. It's also a model that we can use for every watershed moment that exists moving forward. Not even for just the church, but for your family as well. Because it's true that in your family, in your family, you need to learn the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't. Now I've got two minutes to tell you a story that may take three. When Laura and I first started dating, her parents liked me. I I was kind. I used my manners. I tucked my shirt in. I did the things that you try to do to be charming and endear yourself to someone who was a watershed human for you. So I met the parents. They liked me at first. And plus, they knew I was going to seminary. Wow. She found a preacher. Bless her heart. (laughs) One day, I went to her church. And I went to her church where her family went to church. And it was a very conservative legalistic, fundamentalist congregation. Good people, but from a perspective in the world that was new to me. They introduced me to the preacher. They said to the preacher, preacher, this is Sean. He's dating Laura, and he's going to be a preacher. And so the preacher said to this soon-to-be preacher, oh, that's great news. You're about to go to seminary. Where are you going to seminary? I said to him, Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond. Now, at that point, it was as if the needle on the record went... (laughs) Because what he knew that her parents didn't know was that it was common opinion that the Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond was a liberal seminary. you got to say it like that. It's kind of guttural. I think it's kind of German. Liberal seminary, right? What they didn't know was these men and women were some of the greatest theological minds of our time and loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet it didn't matter because what they had heard, they had heard. So 
A week or so later, I was invited to dinner at the Beeler's for the very first time. It was a great dinner until I realized I was dessert. Yeah. We retired into the living room where I sat on the couch next to my watershed human being who had changed the trajectory of my life. And across from us, her parents sat and pulled out a list of questions that had been prepared by the preacher. And it covered everything, including, but even more than any Spanish Inquisition ever had included. It included, what do you believe about evolution? What do you believe about the Bible? Is it the word of God or the word about God? What do you believe it's inerrant? What do you believe about homosexuality? What do you believe about abortion? Are you pro-life? Are you pro-capital punishment? And it went on, and it went on. And we were there for a long time. And I did then what I always do, to the best of my ability, answer transparently in love the truth. And some of the answers pleased them, and some did not. And what began that day was a journey that I wouldn't trade for my life. We learned from one another. And from that day, even till this past Thanksgiving, (laughs) we have learned to tell the difference between differences that make a difference and differences that don't. It means that when we're together, we can neither have Fox News nor CNN on. It means there are some categories we avoid because of the one thing that we've discovered that makes all the difference, that we both, we all in this family, love the Lord with our whole heart, and they know that I would lay down my life for their daughter. Now, fast forward, it's time to ask for his blessing in marriage. What I didn't tell you is Laura has a sister who also married a pastor who went to an approved seminary. (laughs) They are our best friends in the world, but they got married first. When he asked permission or blessing for marriage, this was what he heard. Well, yes, it's, it's time. The only thing I ask is two things of you. Don't hit her. And number two, when it gets tough, don't try to quit. Bring her home. You stick with it. You stay together. You're married now. All right. A year later, it's my turn. Terry, I'd like to, at the time, is Mr. Beeler, I'd like to talk to you about marrying your daughter. And we had a long talk. He said, well, there's, there's some concerns I have about the seminary where you're attending. I said, I know, I know. But you have to trust me. I love your daughter, and it's going to be fine. And then he said, well, okay. He said, uh, I just ask a couple things of you. Number one, don't hit her. And number two, if it gets tough, just bring her back to me. I, <laughs> And on this day, I would tell you, there's not a thing I would not do for that man whom I love as my father. But that only happens when we are patient with one another to learn the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't.